Well, hello, Good Coastway Church. My name is Tanner Powell, and I'm the college director here at Coastway. And it's so great to see all of you, whether you're in person or you're online. We are so excited you're here. I want to start out by giving each and every one of you guys an invite for this coming weekend. We are having our Weekender. And you may be asking, what is the Weekender? Well, it is the next step to everything Coastway. Uh, You will learn more about our vision, our mission, our values. You'll get to connect with our pastors and community group leaders. And it is this coming Friday night. We'll feed you an excellent dinner. We have kid care. So please mark your calendars for this coming Friday with the Weekender. You can sign up at coastwaychurch.com slash weekender or stop by the welcome tent on your way out and we'll help you get registered there. Um, But whether it's on your app or in your lap, go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Peter. It's where we're picking up today. We are on week three of a series called City in a City. And let me tell you what the series has been all about. See, the premise is how we as Christians are citizens of more than what you see. We're, more, we're citizens more than just this world, this country, this city. We are citizens of a greater kingdom. In fact, our primary citizenship is with God in heaven, not man on earth. And what we have been studying is we've been seeing the, how it affects everything and how we live and how we relate to others. And some of you guys may not know me. I may not know you that well. But I do know probably everyone well enough to know what we're all actually asking. Why? Because I'm asking it too. What everyone in this world is actually asking is this. How in the world do I get hope? How do I keep hope? How do I give hope? And we touched on this last week in the book of 1 Peter, where it says we have been born again to a living hope. And we have a living hope because we have a living hope. Lord, and He is our hope. And now there's a big difference in the way the city of man and the city of God kind of thinks about and seeks hope in life. See, the city of man seeks hope through happiness. See, it really just focuses on your current circumstances. As long as my circumstances are good, then I can have hope. However, the city of God seeks it differently. Instead of seeking it through happiness, they seek hope through holiness. See, it focuses not on the circumstances, but on character. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, today, holiness. And you may hear the word holiness, and you may just get a big yawn. You may be tired and be like, man, holiness is just kind of boring. You may think of an uptight Sunday school teacher or a list of rules you constantly have to abide by. And if that's you in the room today, I'm sorry that that's what your mind kind of gravitates towards. And I hope that today can kind of reframe and give you a better vision for what holiness in the Bible actually is. And so today's sermon is really intended to help you see that it is actually inseparable. We cannot separate the relationship between hope and holiness. They actually always go together. And that's what we're going to see today in First Peter So the best way to describe this is go ahead and jump into the text. But before we do, I want to go ahead and give you the sermon in a sentence. In case you have to hop offline or head out early, I hope you don't. But here it is. The sermon in a sentence is, We hope in God by pursuing holiness. We hope in God by pursuing holiness. So let's go ahead and jump into the text. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. It says, Therefore, 
preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope, that's our word, fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right. In 1950s, there was a famous experiment done by a Harvard researcher. And basically, in the experiment, what he was trying to see is how long rats could swim. Sounds kind of bizarre, but rats are actually pretty good swimmers. So he got a bunch of different rats, and he wanted to see if he put them in a pool of water, how long that they would swim before they just gave up and drowned. So he did this multiple times, and it, it always came out about to an average of 10, maybe 15 minutes but really around that 10-minute mark, that rat would just kind of give up and drown. So he, he decided to do something a little different. So he put a couple of rats in, and at that 10-minute mark, when they finally would kind of start to give up, he would pick them up, he would dry them off, give them a few minutes break, and put them back into the water. He did this multiple, multiple times with many different rats. And he would reset the clock, but instead of 10 minutes, they lasted much longer. They lasted 60 hours. You heard me right, not 60 minutes, 60 hours. They would swim for actual days just by giving them, picking them up, drying them off for a few minutes and putting them back in the same water. They would swim for 60 hours. What was the difference? The difference was the introduction of hope. And that's what we really see that for mankind, we need hope. People are no different than these rats. When we have hope, we can overcome a lot of darkness, a lot of discomfort, a lot of difficulty. But when hope is lost, so are we. And the message of the gospel acknowledges that we actually can't live without hope. It says that we're actually hopefully living or hopelessly dying. So how do you know if you're hopefully living? You're hopefully living if you're staking your hope in the cost Jesus paid and the way he made to be restored to God. That's how you know if you're hopefully living. But how do you know if you're hopelessly dying? It's you're actually staking in the hope in the things that are passing, not promised. So when we kind of look at hope, the city of man, the world, really struggles to describe this word hope. The world doesn't offer anything close to the hope held out in the gospel. So when the city of man attempts to define and describe true hope, it falls short. It says, be optimistic, be positive, well wishes to all, good luck. That's what it does. But as Christians, we have something so much better. And here's the difference between biblical and secular hope. Secular hope is focusing on your problems changing. It's all about changing your circumstance. It's about getting my car fixed, getting healthy again, getting more money, getting married, getting my business to boom, getting my kids potty trained, getting pregnant, getting my sports team to win. That's what it's about. It's all about change. But biblical hope is not changing. It's actually staked in a person who is unchanging. Biblical hope is not limited by your problems changing. It is unlimited by a person who is unchanging. Let's kind of dive into verse 13 here. It says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought. And man, that, that is a powerful concept right there. Will be. 
If the grace I've been shown on earth, how amazing is this grace? How much better is the grace I will be shown in all of eternity? That, that is biblical hope. And what is the definition of biblical hope? Here it is. Biblical hope is a resilient confidence that when we die, we will face God's grace instead of God's wrath. See, it's so much bigger than anything the world has to offer. It's bigger than Ramsey's seven baby steps. It's be- better than a one-night stand. It's bigger than your new furn- furnishings and finishes on your house or others liking you, or getting your kids to be obedient, or winning 18 holes of golf. See, it is not something so temporal like the world has hope in. It is something so utterly beautiful and eternal. And the thing is, is I think a lot of us fail to see that life on earth is often so much shorter than we think. It's very temporal. And we still pause, all of us, and we're shocked over passing celebrities like Bob Saget and Betty White. And I think we forget that the death rate in the world is still one-to-one. It is here one moment, and it is passing. It is so temporal. So where is our hope? If the claims of Christ are true, then we have a lot more to think about than what we see and feel. So we should not be asking, how can I fix the things in my life? How can I change my circumstances? But what we ought to ask is, how do I get myself and others around me to stand before a just and holy God? How am I about to approach a God in eternity? And here Peter is about to show us what it looks like to set all of our hope fully on God. Not 60%, not 90%, not 99.999%, no, 100% fully on God. Let's look at verse 14. It says, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So how do we get hope? How do we keep hope? And how do we give hope? It is through the pursuit of holiness. And you might have never heard that before. That may be a new concept, hope through the pursuit of holiness. But see, it's actually kind of what the entire Bible teaches all throughout. See, let me give you a, an explanation, like a definition of kind of what holiness is. Holiness of God means that he is utterly unique. He is completely other. He is completely set apart. He's not some slightly smarter, slightly faster, slightly stronger version of yourself. No, he is completely different. He is not the creation. He is the creator. He is not made, but the maker. And a helpful way to kind of think about the holiness of God is to think of the sun. See, the sun is, has three holy traits. It is central, it is essential, and it is powerful. So let's think of the sun in the ways it is kind of holy. So the sun is central. It is the center of our whole solar system. All the planets and everything kind of revolve around the sun. And the sun is essential. It provides life for every living thing on earth. We cannot live without it. If it were to disappear, we would be gone in an instant. But it's also extremely powerful. Everyone gets sunburned in the summer and it really stinks. But when we stare at the sun, it has a great intensity when we look at it. And if we think about it, we're so far away from the sun. And as we get closer, 
the more and more intense it gets, the more powerful it gets. So much so that it becomes actually dangerous. It will annihilate you. The same sun that gives hope and life is also holy. And this is the idea that we kind of have to think about when we think about God. If you are impure, unclean, and come too close to God, His perfect holiness, His presence can destroy you. And it's not because He's bad. It's because He's so good. He is so holy. It's just like a parent who's just not going to let an intruder walk into his house. So with God, His holiness will push us back. And we see this theme kind of traced about God's holiness all throughout the Bible. This is really what even the book of Leviticus is all about. Yeah, I said Leviticus, the same book that made all of us quit our reading plan already this year. Um, See, the primary place in the book of Leviticus, God's presence is in the tabernacle, in the temple. It's in a place called the Holy of Holies. It was the hot spot of God's presence. And no one could ever enter it or they would die. They could not enter into his holiness except once a year, the high priest, and only him, could enter into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence, and offer a sacrifice for his and the people's sin. And it was a very scary, scary day. See, if you were to casually just waltz into the Holy of Holies without much caution, you would immediately just be struck dead. If there was any sickness, any sin, any death, any disease, any of these things in the book of the, the Pentateuch really, that you was making you impure or unclean, you would be struck down because you were in the presence of a perfectly holy God. And here's the message we were kind of received from the book of Leviticus. Sin is deadly. God is holy. Salvation requires a sacrifice. Now live and relate to God accordingly. That's the message we get. But there's another development kind of later on in the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah we have Isaiah, and Isaiah chapter 6 kind of gives us this weird kind of trippy vision of Isaiah. And he is in the presence of the Lord, in the holy of holies, standing before a perfect God. And guess what? He is terrified. He thinks he is surely going to die. He knows the rules. He's impure. God is holy. He should die. And he's standing there, but something really weird happens. There's a strange creature called a seraphim, not 100% sure what it is, but it kind of flies off from the side of God. And what it's holding is holding a hot burning coal. And what the seraphim does is he touches Isaiah's lips with the hot coal. And he says something very curious. It says, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now, back in Isaiah's day, this, this probably wouldn't be very fully clear how a hot coal made Isaiah pure. But it's honestly kind of remarkable because normally if you touch something unholy, that thing becomes unholy and becomes impure. But there's a new idea here where this coal, a holy, pure object, touches an impure Isaiah and transfers holiness to him. Instead of being destroyed by God's presence, by his holiness, he is transformed and qualified. And the implications of this are huge. And what does it all mean? Let's jump to Jesus right here. 
and he claims to be fulfilling everything. He is the embodiment of fully God, fully man, and he is holy. He is holy as God is holy. And throughout Jesus' ministry, what is he doing? He's going around, and he's touching unholy people. The sinful, the sick, the diseased and dead. And when he touches them, a miracle happens. Instead of their unholiness transferring to him, his holiness gives them hope and healing. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. When he touches something unholy, he doesn't become unholy, but what is unholy becomes holy as God is holy. And this is really at the root of what Peter's getting at right here. If Christ has touched and transformed you by faith, then you have been given hope. You have been made holy if Christ has touched your life. Now, Peter in this text is going to show us really kind of four ways that we can live as if God's holiness really has transformed our lives. You can kind of think of these things as habits of holiness or even evidences of God's touching you in Christ. So let's look at these four things. Let's start back in verse 13. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So this is number one. This is the first habit of holiness or evidence that God has touched you. It is to think God's thoughts. That's what the verse is getting at. This means you think clearly and you think biblically. And this can seem impossible in an age where digital addiction is common and the human mind is jumpier and more scattered than ever. This is a responsibility that a lot of us Christians really don't even take that seriously. You ever think, what goes to your mind? What fills your thoughts? What shapes your beliefs? Determines your actions, really. A recent study on millennials kind of found that around 2,800 hours a year are spent consuming digital content. 2,800. But only 153 of those hours are explicitly Christian. The rest is given up to things like Netflix, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, and all the other media outlets. And this explains why we can be so unresponsive to the things of God. It's because we spend so little time setting our minds, filling our hearts with the truths of God's word and the gospel. But Peter says there's a better way. He says, preparing your mind for action. And and in the original language, it's kind of saying something kind of weird. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. And you may be saying, what are my loins and how do I gird them? Well, Back in this day, your loins were these long robes that men would wear. And you you didn't get around very fast. You would kind of just walk a little bit. But what Peter is saying is you can't run in those robes. You can't run in those loins. You need to get ready for action. So the idea is to gird them up, to pick them up, tuck them in your belt, and get ready to compete, get ready to run, get ready to run well for Christ. And this is the point. Christianity is not a mentally passive thing you just do. It is an active thing in which you go all out for Christ in the world. And the way you do this is by pulling your thoughts together. And this doesn't mean everything you think is right and everything you feel is real. No, it 
girding up your mind means to think biblically. And the Bible speaks truly to every area of life. God has given us remarkable clarity on how we as believers can have hope, how we can truly be holy. We need to set our mind on the truths of his word. And within what does it say? And it says, and be sober-minded. And just for clarification, this doesn't just mean don't get drunk. I know that's how a lot of people just want to apply it. It's actually a bigger metaphor for the entire Christian life. It means to think clearly about things. Don't allow those intoxicating thoughts or influences to take over your mind. Yes, this does apply to alcohol, but it applies to so much more. Those Netflix series you're watching, what others are saying about you that you're dwelling on, people that you hang out with, but you can't be sober-minded around them. You don't think rightly we're around them. The shows you watch, the environments you place yourself in, ask yourself, do any of these things blur your vision? Do they cause you to think unclearly about the gospel? about what you're called to as a Christian. And the whole idea is this. You can't run drunk. You can't do it. You need to gird up your loins. Be very sober-minded, and we need the mind of God to do this. Let's pick up in verse 14. It says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not be conformed to the passions Passions are what come out when you give yourself up fully to sinful attachments and appetites, especially related to sexuality and survival. Now, we're going to talk more about this next week on how all these things kind of wage war on our soul. But let's keep going. It says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Mm, ignorance. I love how Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones kind of describes this right here. He says, man's greatest problem is not that he's going to hell or under God's wrath or cut off from grace or condemned to hell. No, man's greatest problem, more than all of these, is that he won't acknowledge these things. He won't acknowledge them. And now I'm not talking about you just saying, God, I don't really know what you say about money, sex, or relationships. Will you show me? If you're asking those things, let me tell you, you're in a great place. I'm not talking about asking those things, we are talking about something far worse. We're talking about those who are denying, ignoring the truths of the gospel. Let me give you a biblical definition of ignorance. Ignorance, a fool who thinks he knows better than God. Someone who thinks he knows better than God. And every time we sin, we function as though we know better than God. God I, I know what you said about sexuality, but it's the 21st century. Gender's pretty fluid. We've discovered a lot about ourselves since you've been here. God, I know what you said about money, but that was, that was before college. That was before COVID. I'm investing in cryptocurrency now. Come on. Peter is saying that to redefine God's word to suit your own preferences is ignorant. But there is a better way we see. We take God at his word. And when we do, we begin to think like God thinks. Let's keep moving forward. Verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, 
you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time you're in exile. This leads us to the second way, the second habit of holiness, the second evidence that God's grace has touched you in Christ, and it is the fear of God. We fear God. As Christ followers, we have to acknowledge we have a holy father. He's not a distant dad or a passive parent. He's close enough to know you and close enough to judge you. And some groan about God's judgment as if it's something like, why is God so cranky all the time? Why does he seem so triggered, just ready to judge? But no, I don't think we understand it right. If God didn't judge, we really should be concerned. We understand this, that every good dad is close enough and cares enough to judge their kids. It's called discipline. This is what the autocorrect on my phone always changed the word disciple to. But is that a coincidence? I don't, I don't really think so. They're pretty closely related here. See, good parents discipline their children. Terrible parents, on the other hand, abuse, abandon, abdicate responsibility. But a good father accepts responsibility for his kids' action. They want them to grow up, be grateful, and give back. And it doesn't happen without judgment. So here's the, here's the fatherly heart of God's judgment right here. It says, I love you. You're wrong. There are consequences you don't see right now. Please turn around before you die. That is God's judgment. And notice how it says, our Holy Father judges impartially. This means everyone will be judged and you won't get anything past him. All that secret sin, that fantasy life, that browsing history, all of it is known by our Holy Father. And God's judgment is a major reason to fear him. And we might say, well, only God can judge me as if it's a more desirable outcome than other people around you judging you. But no, we we need to actually fear God. We need to listen to him. We follow him. We take his word seriously because as Peter says, God judges according to our deeds. And let me clarify here. for If you are a Christian, you are saved by grace, 100%. But we also, as Christians, are evaluated by works. This is what the Bible teaches. When you die, you don't just stand in front of a mirror. You stand before a holy, perfect, just God. And you know those tears that are talked about in Revelation, the one that God will wipe everyone away for. I think we so often think these are just the tears of the trials that broke our hearts. All the hard things that kind of made us suffer a little bit. But what it's actually saying, too, it's more than that. It's also are the tears from the times we broke God's heart, too. All those sinful things that we made God's heart grieve. So even for those whose names are written in the book of life, there's, there's judgment. It will be hard and it will be over. But that's the tension Peter is saying. Your salvation is secure, but God will still talk to you about everything in your life. This is why the fear of God gives us hope and makes us holy. 
It's because we live our lives fearing him today so that we will face him with fewer regrets tomorrow. And what we see about this fear, it's actually a really great thing. It, it actually aligns our hearts with God's. It, it grows us in actually turning and becoming distasted with sin. We ha- grow in a hatred of the sin that we're constantly pulled towards, but we also grow in a delight in his will, in the things that are ultimately pleasing to God. That is what is conforming us to in holiness. So let's continue. Pick up back up in verse 18. It says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And this is number three of the habits of holiness, how God has touched you, is you meditate on the gospel. See, what these verses are that Peter's talking about, they're a vivid review of what Christ has done for you. See, the word knowing here is an active verb. It means you're actively carrying out the action. You're actively knowing, actively rehearsing that you are ransomed. It means that you were bought back and you were brought back into relationship with God from bondage to sin, Satan, and self. You can think of movies like Taken or The Man on Fire where someone is taken away, kidnapped, and there is a great cost to get them back, to buy them back, to go after them. It is an outrageous cost. And what all of human history, the Bible is showing, it is pointing towards you and how God, who is perfectly holy, came after you and made you holy, ultimately with a lamb without blemish. And Peter and the writer of the New Testament says, Jesus is the lamb of God who makes us holy. He is a lamb without blemish that was sacrificed for us. And there are two ways that we can think about how God in Christ makes us holy. So there's positional and progressive holiness. Let's start with positional. Positional is when he touches us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we become positionally holy, righteous, ransomed, right then, instantaneously. We are in a position set apart for God, counted as holy but is also progressively holy. And we see these kind of through these habits of holiness, he's progressively making us holy, meaning we begin to look like and live like Jesus did, growing more and more like him. And now the most important starting point for all of us is this fact of the gospel right here. You can't earn it. It's the biggest part of the gospel. You cannot earn it. You can compare it with secularism or any other worldview. You cannot earn it. The the whole world, the city of man says, life is what you make it. You earn everything. Even every other religion in the world says this. You work hard, you earn favor with God. But it fails so utterly. And the gospel is so different. It is that you cannot earn it. It fails to recognize that everything 
in the Christian life is a gift from God. Many of you know that me and my wife had our baby Piper uh, five weeks ago, and she is adorable. And I remember when we brought her home from the hospital, we were just sitting there, and we were just holding her, and we were like, oh my goodness, she is the cutest thing in the entire world. I would do anything for this little girl. I can't imagine how much I love her right now. And we, we kind of think about that. For Piper's stance right here, did she do anything to earn that from her parents? Absolutely not. Does she do anything for us? No. She, 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 all she gives us is some sleepless nights. And we change a diaper. My wife feeds her. We have to hold her. I have to sing a concert to her every single night to get her to sleep. But it is so beautiful. She gives us nothing, but she has all of our love and affection, and we would do anything for her. And for us Christians, I think we really need to remind ourselves that that is our relationship with our Heavenly Father, that we really earned nothing He has given us. It is all by grace given to us. Every gift, everything is for us in his love. He has poured it out for us. And so really the gospel is not at all about what you earned because you didn't earn a thing, but it's all about what God earned for you and gave to you. And we need to meditate on the grace of the gospel. Let's continue to our fourth one. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is number four, what is getting at this habit of holiness. Sincerely love others. Peter says that pursuing holiness looks like being in close relationship to people, particularly those within the church. And notice the communal language in this verse. It says souls, plural, brotherly love, love one another. The way that holiness relates to others is a sincere, honest love. Now, the city of man doesn't know this kind of love. They kind of describe it a little different. The city of man says that love is a commitment that in no way restricts another person's individualism, ideals, or impulses. What, what the world is saying is this, will you love me? But please don't tell me what I can and can't do. Even if what I'm doing is going to lead to bad for me and death, don't bring up my sin or my selfishness. Just tell me I'm beautiful. Just love me. For your information, this is not love. The city of God says that love is a commitment to seek another person's good ahead of your own, no matter what the cost. Love counts when love costs. And this is precisely how Jesus was to us. At the heart of the gospel is a loving God who came after and loved an unlovely people. And to be a Christian is to view your life as a replay of Jesus's. Living with and relating to frustrating, difficult people, treating them as Christ treats them. This means that your actions toward them are sincere, they're sacrificial, and they're graciously truthful. But, but, but why do you go through all this trouble? Why as Christians do we go through the trouble to sincerely love others? Verse 23 says, Since you have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The word of God. This is why everything we do at Coastway Church is focused on the word of God. We focus all of our efforts on the word of God. It causes us to think like God. It causes us to learn how to fear him, how to meditate properly on the gospel, recalling it in our mind. And it teaches us how to sincerely love others. The word of God tells us the good news of Jesus Christ. And have you ever wondered really what makes Christianity so unique, so different than everything else in the world? Because at the heart of the gospel, heart of Christianity, you have a holy God who came after an unholy people. And he makes them holy through a sacrifice. See, in the Old Testament, if you were unholy, you could contaminate someone, essentially. If you were unholy and you touched a holy person, they became unholy. You can kind of think of it like COVID or another disease. You need to quarantine, you need to isolate, you need to remove yourself from everyone else because your unholiness, your sickness, your disease will spread. But what we see in the gospel is we see the true, absolutely holy Son of God, Jesus Christ, who does something radically different. He's the first holy person without sin who, when touching an unholy person, they become holy. His holiness is transferred to them. And that's what makes it so amazing. He is perfect. He is holy. He is so set apart. And he has called us. He has made us holy by the grace he offers to us. Oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It is his blood, his sacrifice on the cross and the good news of the gospel that has made us holy. And that's his power. That is our hope as Christians. We have hope through his holiness, the holiness that he offers every one of us. Coastway, will you pray with me?